Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Like it sounds so simple. They had no idea. But now the data speaks. I find this not only refreshing, but but at some level astounding. Nature. Welcome back to the Nature Podcast. This week we'll be hearing how to combat hate speech online and finding out how to uncover the first fossils. I'm Benjamin Thompson, and I'm Shamini Bundell. First up on the show, reporter Jeff Marsh has been tackling a topic which is sadly a mainstay of online discourse. If you've ever been on the internet, which I assume you have, it's likely that you've come across some pretty unsavoury views. Almost any topic seems to spawn shouty Twitter outbursts from enraged individuals who hold opposing views to you. It can often feel like people's behaviour online is governed by different principles and etiquette to the outside world. But there's an altogether more sinister ecosystem of hate which goes on in the more private setting of online groups, communities, and pages, which draw people with similar viewpoints together. In these online niches, dangerous narratives—things like white supremacy, religious extremism, anti-women—these narratives can develop and spread, and evidence suggests they can spark real-world aggression. I'm Victor Blackwell in El Paso, Texas, outside of a massive crime scene here, where 20 people were killed. 26- it began in what is becoming a familiar, horrifying way. The white van here on the left was driven down the pavement on London Bridge. Uh, just to uh, confirm, the New Zealand police uh, head of uh, police did say one man has been charged with murder. He didn't give the name. He said he was in his late 20s. Clearly, from what we hear in the news, we know that people involved with a lot of these mass shootings had online activity, online manifestos. He posted that manifesto and ran that live stream. That was the point at which they became aware of him. Uh, well, let's got people in the real world, people online people carrying out then events, it feeding back in the online world. I think it's the, an absolutely unique ecology. This is Neil Johnson from George Washington University. Neil and his team studied the behaviour of online hate communities over the space of a few months. Neil said that inspired by his work as a many-body physicist, he'd taken a fresh approach to studying this online hate ecology. Instead of having to deal with billions of particles and describe them exactly... 
the key to understanding the behavior of a system lies in repackaging all of the behaviors of these particles into other objects, clusters. We've got water boiling in front of us, going to make a cup of tea. The description of that doesn't need you to know everything about every molecule. What you really need to understand is the true physics of how something boils. It lies in the correlated clusters of molecules. Neil looked at Facebook and a Russian social media platform called Vkontakte to understand the network connections between these clusters of hate and to track how members of one cluster could go on to join others. Once they'd understood the dynamics of these hate clusters, they then proposed a set of policies which they say could provide effective interventions to combat the spread of online hate. The reason we're able to provide these policies is because we've understood how these clusters interconnect and in some sense what their Achilles heel is which is the fact that they're a self-organized system and so going in and dealing at the cluster level it's almost like stopping water boiling by removing the bubbles. Neil suggested a range of policies, four to be exact, to suit the organization implementing them. Can they target individuals or bigger groups? Do they prefer a top-down or a bottom-up approach? Depending on those two factors, Neil says that one of these policies should be a good fit. For example, if you're a platform or regulator and you are able to exert top-down pressure, but you didn't want to target individuals, then policy one might work for you, where you intervene at the level of the clusters. We give a detailed mathematical description of which clusters um, to intervene in. Why would you not just find the, the biggest, nastiest cluster and get rid of that? One might think you just go for the biggest, nastiest cluster, but of course that leaves then numbers two, three, four and five, which were not the biggest, but would easily then merge into something that could be even bigger. The best solution would actually be to put up with the largest cluster, because in some sense one could then maybe engage with that. Largest cluster tends to have more powerful people behind them. Some of these clusters, large clusters, turn around and sue um, when attempts are made to shut them down. Going for the smaller clusters, they tend to be weaker. They will be the ones that develop into the largest in the future. Policy 2 is another top-down, hands-on approach aimed at platforms or regulators who are able to intervene at the level of the individual. We've shown that by targeting then a small random selection, as important as random, first of all, the regulator isn't seen as then targeting a particular type of narrative because it's random. And the second is we've shown that just taking out randomly these individuals, the network falls apart. Policies three and four are a bit more organic or hands-off. The beauty of these bottom-up approaches is that once they're initiated, they would theoretically require less direct intervention by administrators. Neil's research showed that there are reasonable numbers of active anti-hate users online. So the thinking for Policy 3, for example, is that social media platform administrators could organise them to act as a sort of human immune system as they engage in narrative debate with the hate clusters. It's a neutralisation, not of clusters against each other, but by putting in almost like a peacekeeper it's almost like it provides a middle ground for debate so that, for example, they're not fighting over their different nationalistic views, but they're being drawn in a cleverer way, maybe by subject matter experts, maybe from social science engagement, um, into 
a almost like a therapeutic narrative. Policy four works to exploit the disagreements that exist within hate groups and set them against each other. I don't really want to be banning clusters or individuals. I want to plant something that causes it to self-destruct. For example, two clusters may be anti-women or anti-immigrant, but they differ in terms of um, nationalistic views. And by setting those narratives against each other, you can get them to implode. All, all four of those policies sound like sound quite sensible. I mean, could a could a country or a social media platform, you know, or a government, not just employ all four and, and see what happens then? They absolutely could, of course. It's like a little bit, though, if I put four types of weed killer in the garden, is that going to be bad? Should I just have one? I mean, it can only be answered if there's some kind of mathematical modelling in there to see what the interplay is. That's something we're looking at now. And we are actually interacting with platforms and regulators about the implementation of these. We should all realise, based on our study, that this is a, a much more global issue. It crosses platforms, it's bigger than any one government. And so in any way that can support directing the conversation towards that, rather than the typical, oh, it's Facebook's fault, oh, it's this government's fault. That was Neil Johnson of George Washington University in the US. You can find his paper along with a News and Views article over at nature.com. Later in the show, scientists have developed a very special ring. Oh, is it a ring forged in the fires of Mount Doom before being lost in the midst of time? Not in this case, Sharmini, no. What I was going to say was, scientists have developed a very special ring, one that's made entirely of carbon. And listeners, you can hear all about it in the news chat. Right now, though, it's time for the research highlights, read this week by Josie Alchin. Gallstones are exquisitely painful lumps of solidified digestive fluid that can grow as large as golf balls in a person's gallbladder. The precise way that these pebble-like deposits form is unclear, so to get a better idea, a team of researchers analysed gallstones that had been removed from people during surgery. Alongside crystals of calcium and cholesterol, the basic ingredients of a gallstone, the team found that the surface of the stones contained an abundance of DNA. This genetic material was produced by a group of white blood cells called neutrophils. These immune cells can use sticky webs of DNA to trap bacteria. In the gallbladder, however, these webs can also trap calcium and cholesterol, helping gallstones to form. The researchers showed that giving mice drugs that reduce neutrophil activity or prevent the nets from forming slowed the growth of gallstones. They hope that their findings will offer new routes to target these agonising aggregates in the future. Head over to the journal Immunity to read more. A New Zealand stick insect species can switch between reproductive strategies in the blink of an evolutionary eye, according to new research. While many populations of this species contain equal numbers of males and females and reproduce sexually, some can be exclusively female, reproducing asexually. One of these asexual populations is found on the Isles of Scilly, a tiny archipelago off the southwest coast of the UK. These stick insects were likely stowaways that hitchhiked around the world on imported plants, perhaps as early as 1911. The genetic ancestry of these insects has been traced by researchers back to a sexual population in New Zealand. 
They showed that the insects likely switched strategies at some point within a hundred-year period, or about a hundred generations in stick insect terms. Meanwhile, two stick insect populations in New Zealand switched in the opposite direction, moving from asexual to sexual reproduction. One population consisted of entirely females back in 2003, but was 50% male just 13 years later. While the reasons behind these switches is unclear, the researchers hope that their work will help scientists understand how location can affect reproductive strategy. Head over to Evolution for more on that one. Next up, reporter Nick Howe is going on a fossil hunt. When I was a young lad walking along Bridlington Beach on the Yorkshire coast, I found a fossil, an ammonite. I had an ancient marine mollusk in my hand that had swum in the ocean maybe hundreds of millions of years ago. I felt pretty special. That was until about five minutes later, when my brother found an almost identical one. As it turns out, these fossils are pretty common in the rocks along the Yorkshire coastline. For a fiver, you could even get a much better preserved one than what I had found from one of the many fossil shops. However, whilst finding fossil ammonites is mere child's play, other fossils are a bit more challenging to come by. And when it comes to finding the earliest traces of life from billions of years ago, well, then things get real tricky. That's what Emmanuel Javot, a paleobiologist from the University of Liège in Belgium, has been writing about in a review in this week's Nature. So, listener. To emulate my fossil-finding younger self, I want you to accompany me on a hunt for one of the earliest traces of life. First off, we need a time frame that we might find it in. We know that、uh, Earth was habitable since about 4.3 billion years ago. That's Emmanuel. At this time, there's evidence of liquid water on Earth, a key ingredient in the recipe of life. So theoretically, life could have emerged then. But、even if it did, it's unlikely that we'd find it. We do have a fundamental problem on Earth, and that is that we don't have any rocks that are older than four billion years. This is Martin Whitehouse, a geologist from the Swedish Museum of Natural History. Whilst rocks did exist four billion years ago, the Earth is a pretty active planet, and so those rocks have been eroded or otherwise changed. Without early rocks, it's pretty hard for us to find early fossils. So any evidence of life we find will be younger than four billion years old. But with countless years of geological processes between the traces of life and us, in many cases, evidence of life may have been erased. Since life appeared on Earth, most of it has disappeared; is not preserved. So we have only、uh, a few pieces of the puzzle preserved. And it's the same with the rock record. So a lot of things happen. There are a lot of mountain building, eroding, or the rocks are altered, transformed into other rocks. So they can be submitted to high pressure and temperature, and this will、uh, completely、uh, erase the possible traces of life that they may hold. Even if we find a really well-preserved rock containing what we think might be an early fossil. It's going to be pretty hard for us to know how old that fossil is. I mean, the actual fossil material itself is essentially undateable. Young fossils, those a mere fifty thousand or so years old, can be dated using radioactive isotopes of carbon. 
But for the fossils we're after, that carbon has long since decayed. To work out the age of a really ancient specimen, we need to date the rock it's embedded in. Fossils are most often found in sedimentary rocks, like sandstone. Sadly, this too has issues. The real problem is most sedimentary rocks are actually very, very difficult to date directly. To age sedimentary rocks, we'll need to find things inside them that can be dated. Things that contain radioactive elements that don't decay so quickly, like uranium, which can be found in the mineral zircon. So, let's say we've done all this. We've got a lovely rock. It's got a marvellous fossil inside, which we've dated. Well done, us. We're done, right? Nope. Now we've got to make sure that the fossil we're saying is evidence of early life is just that. Life. Here's Emmanuel. Another problem is that in several kinds of physico-chemical conditions, abiotic processes can produce organic molecules or morphologies that are similar to what life does. Non-biological, abiotic processes can end up resembling fake fossils or inaccurate indications of life. There are also minerals that just auto-assemble and they form complex shapes like spiralling filaments or segmented filaments or little globules that look like cell colonies. So to make sure that our fossil was once actually alive, we must ensure that it's not a false positive, a geological ghost. Scientists still hotly debate a few claims of the earliest examples of life. Take the supposed 3.7 billion-year-old fossil bacteria found by a thermal vent off the coast of Quebec in Canada. Some scientists argue that what looks like evidence of bacteria may just be the result of natural processes in the rock. So it turns out there are a multitude of reasons why it's hard to pin down how old early life was or what it may have looked like. Given these difficulties, is there anything actual researchers can do to make their non-hypothetical hunts a bit easier in future? Lab experiments might help us out. Emmanuel suggests we could try artificially fossilising organisms. This may be done by mixing them together with minerals at high temperatures and pressures to simulate fossilisation. By doing this, it could help inform how fossilizations occur in nature and so could tell researchers whether a fossil has come from a living organism or not. Also, by mixing together different commonly occurring minerals, researchers are trying to see what sort of structures can form abiotically. Finding the earliest traces of life will give researchers insight about how the diverse biology on Earth emerged and it may even help the search for life on other planets. Here's Martin. The techniques that we develop here, which we can develop in the relative comfort of a field camp or a laboratory or, or whatever, those are absolutely portable to Mars. It, it will be exactly the same tools, uh, with the slightly less convenient aspect of if you find something you can't, go back a year later in another field season and have a look easily. <laughs> uh, it's, a, it's a little bit more, uh, perhaps a bit of a more of a luck of the draw if you land in a good place or not. So it's going to be challenging for sure. That was Martin Whitehouse of the Swedish Museum of Natural History. You also heard from Emmanuel Javot of the University of Liège in Belgium. You can find Emmanuel's review on the topic over at nature.com.
Finally then on this week's show, it is of course time for the news chat. And joining me once again is Nisha Gaines, Nature's European Bureau Chief. Nisha, hi. Hi, Ben. Right, two stories today. The first one is a chemistry story. And, uh, well, it's about a ring that maybe some researchers had given up ever making. Yeah, that's right. This is a really lovely chemistry story. And it is about the long-sought molecule C18, which chemists have finally been able to synthesize in a lab after many years of seeking it. And the reason that it's special is that it's the first ever ring-shaped molecule to be made that is made only of carbon. Right. Well, I guess question one then is, how does one go about making a ring of 18 carbon atoms? With some difficulty. This was a several-stage process, starting with some molecules and doing some traditional wet chemistry in a lab to get these chemicals down to something that was made of just carbon and oxygen. And it was this sort of triangular uh, molecule that chemists then manipulated with an atomic force microscope. And so they used electric currents to make this carbon-18 ring, which is just 18 carbon atoms arranged in a circle. And so is making a structure then of just carbon then, uh, is that something that's really difficult to do? Well, obviously, we know that there are other types of carbon that exist. There's diamond, there's graphite, um, there's graphene. These are all arrangements of just carbon. But the reason that it's difficult to make these singular chains like this ring, or maybe in future just a linear chain of carbon, is that the way that chemists have hypothesized that carbon would bond in these instances would make the structures much more chemically reactive. And synthesizing these types of chains or rings has usually required the inclusion of other elements. Well, I mean, how excited are chemists about this feat then? Yeah, really excited. They have all said that this is an incredible piece of work. Beautiful, one chemist called it. And it's something that lots of people have been trying to do for years. And actually, some have just given up on it. But it was down to some people at the IBM labs in Switzerland who finally managed to do it successfully. And what do we know then about this new structure? What what might it be used for? So from initial studies of this carbon-18 molecule, which is called a cyclocarbon, they suggest that it is likely to be a semiconductor and that would make it uh, useful in the production of certain types of electronic components, for example, transistors. And uh, and how soon then might we expect these components to be used in in regular electronics? Well, there is a little bit more work to do there because at the moment these researchers can only create one molecule at a time. So they've got a bit more work to do before they can create the molecules at greater quantities. Well, moving on to our second story then today, and it's a microbiology and maybe a health story. And it's all about the different ways that babies are born and what that might do to their long-term health. Um, Nisha, what's the background on this one? The background here is a debate that has been raging for a few years and one that many listeners may have heard of. And it's about whether babies born by caesarean section miss out on a kind of bacterial baptism, whether they miss out on a soup of microbes that babies who are born through the vaginal canal are given and how missing out on that might affect their health in future. So what's the kind of history of this debate then and what's being done now to maybe try and put it to bed? So some of this debate goes back to a study in 2010, which found that babies delivered surgically harbour different collections of bacteria than babies that were born vaginally. 
Research also suggests that C-section babies are more prone to obesity and immune diseases such as diabetes. And C-section babies make up a substantial proportion of births. In the United States, they make up more than 30%. So now we're seeing a bunch of trials that are starting in the US, Sweden and China that will see hundreds of C-section babies who will be swabbed with their mother's microbes. That essentially means that microbes will be taken from the mother and babies will be rubbed with them. And the outcomes of these babies will be compared with those of a control group. So some fairly big experiments then. What's the research community saying about them? Well, there's been a mixed reaction. This is a controversial idea and there have already been some criticisms. Some researchers fear that the trials could expose these C-section babies to infection or even encourage mothers to do a kind of DIY swabbing at home when there's not much evidence to suggest that there is a benefit yet. Well, finally on this one, Nisha, this debate is still going on, as as you say. Um, How long will we have to wait to maybe find out what the results are? Well, because there are several clinical trials that are at slightly different stages. Some are recruiting, some have already recruited mothers to take part. It will take a few years before we find out any results because, of course, we have to wait for these children to grow up and to see how the way that they were born affects things like their weight and their allergy risk and other factors that these researchers are looking for. So it'll be a few years yet. Well, thank you, Nisha. One to keep an eye on. Listeners, head over to nature.com slash news for all the latest science updates. And that's it for this week's show. There's just time left to subtly suggest telling someone you know about the podcast. Perhaps that person over there. Yeah, them over there. Go tell them. Or maybe rather than accosting a stranger, you could tell someone you know who's got an interest in science. That'd probably make more sense. I'm Sharmini Bundell. And I'm Benjamin Thompson. See you next time. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.